Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation. The goal of the Sounds True Foundation is to provide access and eliminate financial barriers to transformational education and resources, such as teachings and trainings on mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion. If you'd like to learn more and join with us in our efforts, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Natalie Kogan. Natalie Kogan is an entrepreneur, a speaker, and an author on a mission to help millions of people cultivate their awesome human skills by making simple, scientifically backed practices part of their daily life. Natalie immigrated to the United States as a refugee from the former Soviet Union when she was 13 years old. She created Happier, a company whose award-winning mobile app, online courses, and Happier at Work training programs have helped more than a million people improve their emotional health. Natalie is a sought-after keynote speaker and has appeared in hundreds of media outlets, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Which sounds true, Natalie has released the book Happier Now and a new book called The Awesome Human Project, Break Free from Daily Burnout, Struggle Less, and Thrive More in Work and Life. A super achiever, Natalie herself went through what she calls an avalanche burnout. Not just a little burnout, but a big accumulated burnout that made her pause her entire life and her career in order to recover. The Awesome Human Project is what came from her recovery. Everything she learned about how we can live in a way that enables us to thrive while we give all of our gifts energetically to other people. Here's my conversation with awesome human, Natalie Kogan. I'm excited to talk to you, Natalie, about your new book and the body of work that's underneath it, the Awesome Human Project, and becoming awesome humans. But before we get there, as a form of introduction, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a bit about you. I understand that you came to the United States as a teenager as a Russian Jewish refugee. And what I'd love to know more is a refugee, a refugee from what? What were the circumstances of your immigration to the United States? Um, I'm thrilled to be here, Tammy, and to have this conversation. And I'm thrilled about this as a first question, actually talk about this in the book. So I grew up in what was then the former Soviet Union, which is what we now call Russia. And being a Jew in the Soviet Union at that time, so we're talking about 70s and the 80s before the fall of communism, um, it was a really challenging experience. There was a policy of official government persecution of Jews. So as a Jew, you were actually considered a second-rate citizen um, and it was accepted in various institutions and between people to discriminate against Jews. So examples of that were things like quotas 
for admission to universities and medical schools. Only a certain number of Jews could get in per year. Um, it was really hard to get jobs as Jews. It was perfectly fine to hear slurs against Jews in the street, and that was kind of accepted. In my life, the way it um, showed up was, you know, I was a total geek. I still am. I love to study. I love to do well. But as a Jew, I could not have the highest grade on a test or an exam, for example. So if I had the highest grade in the class, my grade would be lowered to huh. match other people. So um, I danced with a dance troupe. Um, I was a dancer since I was five, but I wasn't allowed to travel outside of Leningrad, which is St. Petersburg now where I grew up. So as a Jew, even though I was a lead in this children's youth company, when they went to perform in different republics or outside the city, I couldn't go because I was Jewish. And so uh, that is why we left. And, you know, I was 13 at the time, so I was very much old enough to understand what was going on. Um, and it was and became and still is the formative experience of my life. You know, when people ask me about what was it like to come to the U.S. as a refugee, I say it's not an event. It's a life experience. To this day, it affects all of my choices, who I am, my decisions. Um, but the 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 logistics around it, if you would. So we left um, in the spring of 1989. It was me and my parents. I'm an only child. And we were by law allowed to bring two suitcases per person and $600. And that was it. And everything else had to stay behind. It was considered government property, if you would. We gave it to our family and friends. And we spent two and a half months in refugee settlements that the Americans had set up in Italy and in Austria applying for permission to come to the U.S. as refugees. And my parents wrote this very thick affidavit of all the ways that we were persecuted. And I remember, this is such an eerie memory, my parents being really fearful that we wouldn't get in because ours wasn't as bad as some other people. My dad came and he said, wow, I just found out this one family, the father actually got beat up in the street and we didn't. So I'm not sure we'll get in, which is a surreal conversation mm -hmm. to be having. Um, about 30% uh, of Jews were being accepted that way at the time. About 450,000 Russian Jews came through those refugee settlements in um, 1989 and 90, uh, which is when we came. And obviously, we were incredibly lucky and grateful to get permission to enter the U.S. as refugees. And my American dream started in public housing and the projects outside of Detroit in a town called Ypsilanti, uh, where we were given food stamps and welfare and a tiny place to start our American dream. Now, you said, Natalie, that this was the formative event, circumstance, context of your life, and that makes sense to me. I'm curious, how? How did this form you? And what, what were the impacts? You probably discovered them your whole life. Yes, very much so. And again, it's something I... Um, I'm 46. I just turned 46 a few days ago. And I would say in the last couple of years, I had a lot of clarity and a lot of peeling back the layers um, that went into this book. But a couple of ways that it affected me. One was, you know, at 13, I have a 17 year old daughter. And I think at 13, you know, you're in this very tender place where I'm not sure you want to move across the street, right? Um, routine is good, knowing your friends are good. And my world and my identity just disappeared. And here I was, the only I'd say identity at 13 that I had was I was a good student. And all of a sudden here I was in remedial classes because I didn't speak English, I didn't know what people were saying. 
feeling like an idiot most of the time, which for me meant kind of really shutting down. Um, and I'm not, I'm a pretty open person. I have a lot of energy and I just sort of closed in. And one of the things as part of that, that's taken me 32 plus years to untangle is I kind of decided that I needed to hold in all my emotions because I couldn't really talk about them with my parents. They had their own battles to fight. You know, my dad was trying to find a job so we would have food, right? Where do emotions come in? You know, I would say we're a very loving family, but I didn't grow up with any kind of tools to talk about emotions because that was a luxury. You just sort of fought the battle. So one of the biggest impacts was I just kind of stuffed it all down. All the emotions of anxiety and confusion, I just said, you know what, I just got to stuff it down. And it took 25 years for that to kind of explode out of me, which led to a really severe burnout and breakdown. So that was, a, I think, the biggest impact. There are many others, including positive ones, I do want to say. Um, you know, we talk about resilience a lot these days. I've given a lot of talks on resilience. And I think the experience of being a refugee, of just being new to everything, gave me this, this skill set because I think of resilience as a skill to just roll up my sleeves and figure out how to get through difficult things. You know, my daughter often says, um, I'm not sure there's ever, I've heard you ever say, mama, that something is like too difficult. And it's not that I don't perceive things as difficult, but it was such a difficult experience that ever since then, when some, a challenge arises, I just sort of naturally go, okay, well, mm -hmm. let's figure it out. And so I think those are two huge um, impacts. And one more, if, if I may mention, is, you know, it kind of created this sense in me that it was me against the world, because I felt really alone. As I mentioned, my, my parents are very loving, but, you know, they were trying sure. to get food on the table, right? So all of a sudden, I was the adult. Um, in fact, I was helping my dad, like, write his resume and go to the bank to ask how to open an account, because I was learning English faster. And while as a teenager, you might think it's fun to be a parent of your parent, it's a very, very destabilizing experience to not have any cover. So I felt very, not just lonely, but alone. And I kind of adopted this mentality of a lone warrior. It was me against the world. And whatever I was going to achieve in my life, I was going to do it on my own. And I had to, it had to be tough. And I had to keep all my emotions inside. And that, um, while it helped me achieve a lot of things, it was incredibly damaging to uh, myself, to my emotional health, and I think to some relationships that I had. And again, it's only in the last few years that I feel I've been able to fully face that. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned stuffing your emotions down, mm -hmm. and yet in the Awesome Human Project book, you talk a lot about emotional fitness you even put in the book a five-week emotional fitness challenge. Mm -hmm. And I realized, I don't know if I know what emotional fitness is. Like, mm -hmm. I think if, when you think about a term like physical fitness, I think people, it's part of the vocabulary. People go, yeah, I know that person. They look, they're really physically fit. Look at them. Mm -hmm. You know, they, there are ways we can test how much, you know, can they, you know, walk up that hill without, you know, huffing and puffing and falling down, et cetera. What are the telltale signs of emotional mm. fitness and, and how do you define that term? I, by the way, I just want to say it's a great question. I don't think I knew what emotional fitness was until I started to write this book and realized I want to define 
this skill set that I feel I've gained and that's helped me. So the way that I define emotional fitness is as a skill, and it's really, really important um, to articulate this. It is a skill. It's not something just like physical fitness. It's not like some people are stronger than others. When you live healthier, when you're active, your physical fitness improves. So it's a skill we can all improve. But the way that I define it is as a skill of creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts, your emotions, and other people so that you can struggle less through whatever challenges arise. And to me, at the core of emotional fitness is this more supportive relationship with ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, and other people. And again, I, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know if this is a psychologically correct definition, but it is a definition that seems most accurate to me. And again, just like physical fitness, you know when you're physically fit, right? We all know, I was just on vacation for a while, so I haven't been keeping up with my yoga. And I did a yoga class last night and I was like, oh, wow, this is tougher than it was two weeks ago, right? So we know when we haven't been practicing something, I think we all know the kind of relationship we have with ourselves and our thoughts and our emotions, if we're honest about it. And emotional fitness is all about creating that more supportive relationship because when we do, we have the capacity, we have the energy and the ability to get through inevitable life challenges with less struggle um, and by creating a more positive impact on others. And that's how I think about it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, this idea that we can struggle less when we're emotionally fit, when challenging things happen. Mm. And one of the first practices that you introduce in the Awesome Human Project is this notion of struggle awareness. Mm. So let's say someone listening says, okay, I can become aware of the fact that I'm struggling in this part of my life, struggling in that part of my life. How does this struggle awareness help me I start with awareness, but how am I going to struggle less? So um, it's a great question. And I love that you're bringing up a practice because as you know, from my work, it's all about these tangible ways to practice improving these skills. This isn't about some dramatic outside changes. So just a couple words um, about this idea of struggle versus challenge. And again, we talked about my, my background. I grew up believing the opposite. I just want to be really honest about that. I grew up believing that when life is challenging, you own the struggle. You feel it. You talk about it. That's how I learned in my family to express love. Someone's struggling, I struggle with them, right? So it's taken quite a shift. The difference between challenge and struggle, challenge is on the outside. We all have challenges in so many different ways. Challenges in our home, in our personal lives, people we love, in our work, etc. Not, not much we can do about challenges. They come up. We don't have control when or how. Struggle is on the inside. And struggle is something we have a choice about because struggle comes from our mindset about this challenge and our relationship with our thoughts about it, our own emotions, our supportive relationship or not with ourselves. And so struggle awareness is a practice of not just becoming aware of where I'm struggling in my life, but it's more going inside and asking yourself, how is the way that I am thinking about this challenge? Maybe it's a challenge in my personal life. Maybe it's a challenge at work. How is the way that I am thinking about it? How might it be causing me to struggle more? And this is where we get a little bit into, um, as what I call in the book, an unboring neuroscience lesson, but something that I think is really important to mention. The thoughts that we have are not objective. 
right? Our brain, um, I, I say this in the book, our brain doesn't care if we're happy, if we're sad. Our brain doesn't care about how much we struggle. Our brain's number one job is to protect us from danger. And it's a pretty good thing because being alive is wonderful. But as a result of that, the brain has developed certain characteristics that actually increase our struggle. And a few that I talk about are, for example, our brain has a negativity bias. So whatever challenging challenge we might be experiencing, our brain over-focuses on all the things that are wrong or could go wrong and ignores anything that might be okay or even meaningful or joyful or kind in our experience. The other thing to know about our brains is our brains hate uncertainty. Uncertainty is the hardest thing for the human brain to handle. So whenever we're experiencing a challenge, usually challenges come with uncertainty, right? We're not quite sure how this is going to work out. Our brain goes into overdrive, creating really dramatic negative stories about this challenge that are actually making us struggle more, that are causing us more stress. And so the practice of struggle awareness is becoming aware well, the way that I'm thinking about this challenge on the, on the outside, whatever it might be, is it really tainted by my negativity bias, right? Am I over-focusing on everything that's wrong and ignoring some things that are okay, which will give me strength to get through it? Um, is my brain making up a lot of really dramatic stories about how this is going to go and thinking about them and ruminating on them all the time is actually causing me a lot of stress and preventing me from moving forward. That's what the practice of struggle awareness is. It's about becoming aware of how we are thinking about the external challenge and whether those thoughts are actually causing us more struggle and then course correcting. And that's the other practices I offer in the book. Once you become aware, awareness is really powerful because it gives us choices. Once we become aware that, you know what? I'm just ruminating on the worst possible scenario. That is not helpful to me. What would be helpful, right? And that's another practice that I offer, which is all about editing our thoughts. But that's the essence of struggle awareness. So early in the Awesome Human Project, you describe that we can courageously talk back to our brains. Yes. And I was like, this is, and I'll use the word, this is awesome. <laughs> yes. I, I need to courageously talk to my brain about all yes. kinds of things. But then this question emerged and it's kind of a question and I kind of have a felt sense of the answer, but it's hard to articulate. So I wanted to ask you, who is it that's talking to my brain? <laughs> Is this like the wa some, some wise part of me that is outside my brain? Like, help me understand that. Yeah. No, I, I, and it's, it's a great question. Uh, I think it's, it's a question five years ago I wouldn't have had the answer to. And I just have to say, Tammy, since we're having this conversation, so many of the authors that I've read who sounds to have published have helped me understand this distinction. But the way that I think of our brain is a little child, right? A little child, if left on their, to their own devices, they sort of go from one place to another. So one time they're crying, the next time they're laughing. So I think of the brain as the little child and that person, that being who speaks back, who talks back to the brain and autocorrects. I think of it, as you said, it's this wiser part of us. I often think of it as the grandparent. Just to give a really tangible analogy. No, it's great. It's, a, it's great. Because I think we can all feel this, even if, yes. you know, even if philosophically it might 
bring questions up about how many of me are there? <laughs> what model do we want to apply? But yes. I think we can feel what you're saying. So keep yes, going. It's the grandparent. Yeah. You know, I was very lucky um, when I was growing up in Russia, my dad's parents lived next door. And during the day, they really took care of me after school. So I, and my mom's parents lived in the south of Russia. I spent every summer with them and they came with us. My grandpa only died last year. He lived till 96. And so um, I've grown up very grateful till I was 45. I had grandparents. And I think we all know that experience, even if we didn't have our own grandparents. But a grandparent, you know, you come to them with your problem. And the first thing my grandma and grandpa would always do is they would say, Natashenka, that's my Russian name, Natasha. They would say, Natashenka, just sit for a moment. Let me make some tea and then we'll talk. And immediately you just sort of feel this like centering. Like, okay, I'm not just going to run along with these frantic thoughts of this is going to be bad. This is going to be awful. You're awful. This won't ever work. But you, you develop, the grandparent has a little bit of a distance between them and your thoughts. And the other thing that I think is really important, you mentioned it, is that part of us that talks back to our brain, it does it with kindness and compassion. Our brain is part of us. When you talk to a little child who's having a tamper tantrum, you don't scream at them. You don't yell at them. You know that doesn't help. We've all done it, let's just say. When my daughter was little and she'd have a tamper tantrum, I'd get so frustrated at some point I'd yell. But that doesn't help. You know what does help? When I'd get on the floor with her and I'd look at her and I'd say, I love you, I'm here. If you wanna talk about it, let's talk about it. If you just wanna cry with me, let's cry. And there's a calmness that happens when we approach those thoughts that I just talked about it from that grandparent place with, compassion and kindness, but also an understanding that those thoughts are not truth and that there's a way to, to shift for them to be more helpful to us. So that's how I think about it, the little child and the grandparent. Mm -hmm. There's a quote from the book, you write, our stories can become our shields. Mm. And that's why it takes courage to put them down. Because you talk about not just talking to our brains, editing the narratives we've created, but that we have to do so courageously. Mm. So tell me, what, what's the courage that's required here? Yeah, you know, um, I didn't realize when I began to write the book and think about these things that I'd be writing so much about courage, but it is one of the five qualities of awesome humans. And the courage is necessary because our stories about ourselves can get really comforting and comfortable. So I mentioned one of mine, right? I had the story about myself that I was this tough cookie and everything I was going to achieve, I was going to fight for it myself. And I was this kind of lone superwoman. And that was my story, Tammy, for 25 years. And it was safe in a way because that's what I was used to. And look, I was accomplishing all these things. And when I went through a really, really terrible burnout and breakdown, I had to find the courage to actually poke some cracks in that story and to acknowledge that, well, actually, there were people in my life who were supporting me. I wasn't alone. And the world isn't this um, confrontational place where everything was a battle and a lot of the battles I was creating internally in my mind. And the courage is required because when I was putting down that story, I didn't yet know what, what my true self was. I was just hanging on to the shield, right? Because being this tough lone warrior, what did it create? It created, you know, I was always, I think, a pretty nice person, 
but I was always pretty sharp, very quick. I valued efficiency and results above anything else. I didn't have a lot of patience. I didn't have a lot of compassion because the way we treat ourselves is how we treat others. So the courage is in putting down those stories or those narratives and being open to creating something that is more supportive of yourself, that is closer to how you truly are. And that does require courage. It's scary to be more honest with yourself and others about who you are. Now, you mentioned there are five qualities of awesome humans, courage being one of them. Tell me, what is this whole awesome human project (laughs) anyway? What does it mean to be an awesome human? And then, if you will, what are all five of these qualities? Yes. Um, So at the core of this, I love when you said, Tammy, at the beginning, the body of work, the, the, the place where I got to was this recognition that there is an awesome human inside each of us. And what I mean by that is very specific. It doesn't mean we're all perfect. None of us are. It doesn't mean we don't have ways to grow or improve. We all do. But I believe that each one of us has this really unique and meaningful capacity to create meaning, to be a positive impact on people we love, on our work, and on our world. We all have this capacity. But the thing is, things get in the way. And the first thing that gets in the way is our brain. It gets in the way with these limiting beliefs, with these incorrect stories, by making us struggle more. And so we sort of cover up that awesome human capacity. And the reason I wrote this book and the reason it has the five-week awesome human challenge is to help you learn the skills and the qualities to break through those limiting beliefs, to struggle less during challenges. So you can bring your awesome, unique capacity to create meaning and reach your purpose and be a positive impact on others. So that's what I mean by we're all awesome humans. We're awesome, but we're also human. So we have to practice. And so in the book, I talk about the five qualities of awesome humans and then the five emotional fitness skills, and that's a challenge. So the five qualities I talk about, the first is emotional openness and awareness. You know, we cannot improve our emotional fitness if we are not first aware of our emotions, as you and I have talked about. And then being actually open about articulating our emotions to others, which is challenging. And I offer some practices to do that. So that's the first quality. We've talked about courage, both courage to talk back to our brains when they're causing us to struggle more and the courage to shift or drop some of those unhelpful narratives. Leadership is another awesome human quality. And, you know, I went down um, quite a rabbit hole when I was working on the leadership chapter um, learning about what it truly means to be a servant leader, which I think I misunderstood for most of my career as a leader. And so many people do. Being a servant leader is not about sacrificing yourself for others. Um, And so the leadership quality is all about the way I define a, a leader is you are a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. And that definition has become really meaningful to me. You know, I work with a lot of leaders in my work and the the, the kernel of that is you cannot positively impact others if you don't first positively impact yourself because we all share our energy and emotions with others. So leadership is a quality of awesome humans. Um, I'm going I'm to interrupt you here just please. for a moment on these two points, emotional openness and awesome humans or leaders, because a question came up for me, mm. which is, you know, you talk about how you use this image. I think it's very powerful how we're each walking around with what you call an emotional whiteboard Mm -hmm. right in front of our chest, whatever our emotions are, everybody. And I think that's true. And as a leader, 
you know, sometimes I've gotten feedback, you know, Tammy, you should be happier. You should be more positive. You should be more this. And I'm like, look, I'm just going to be truthful. You know, you can count on me. Sometimes I'm in a great mood. Sometimes I'm not. But Well, leaders, no, leaders, Tammy, are, they're the people that, you know, rah, rah, and cheer everybody up and stuff. And I was like, well, look, I don't really know how to do that. There's a whole many questions in this, which is basically how emotionally open should we be when we're in a work environment leading other people? Well, Tammy, I'm so glad you brought this up. You know, I have the opposite experience. So I've, I've you know, I, I, in my career, began to lead teams from an early part of my career with no concept of what I was doing, just to be <laughs> really open to that. And I actually adopted the mindset that, yes, as a leader, I have to be positive and confident. You know, I always, when I speak about this on stage, I say, if you Google images of me from 15 years ago, you get this, you know, like a stock, almost like a stock photo of Natalie being a positive and confident leader. So I actually believed that no matter how I felt inside, I had to show up to my team, pretend everything was awesome. The word awesome was the most overused word in my vocabulary and just point the way forward. And it was, again, only when I went through a really severe burnout and break breakdown that I recognized how damaging that was for my teams. Because the truth is, we cannot actually pretend to each other. This emotional whiteboard that I talk about, as human beings, one of the things we are best at is sensing each other's emotions. So while I always thought I could just pretend that everything was amazing when it wasn't, my team knew it, I, was, I wasn't being truthful, but the thing about our emotional whiteboards, other people see them, but they see them through kind of fuzzy glasses. So they sense something is up, but they don't have the context. So by pretending to be positive as a leader when I wasn't, I actually, Tammy, created a lack of trust and a lack of psychological safety on my team because I'd show up with my fake smile pretending you know, to be this energizer when I actually had a lot of self-doubt or just wasn't feeling that upbeat. And my team could sense I wasn't being truthful, but they didn't know what was going on. So that caused them to struggle more. They had to waste their energy trying to guess like, well, what actually is going on? Why, why isn't she saying? Of all the things I mentioned about the brain, that's what happened in their brain. So because they didn't have the facts, they started to ruminate, wait, is she acting like this? Is there something big she's not telling us? Is the company in trouble? Am I in trouble? You know, in the book, I talk about this tense boss scenario. We've all been in it. When you're meeting with your boss and your boss, who's usually pretty effusive, is kind of acting off. The first thing you think of is, oh my God, what did I do? And then you start to spin those stories. And I say all this because I had the experience of learning how damaging it was to pretend to be positive when I wasn't to my team. And um, a lot of people um, didn't enjoy their jobs because of it. I didn't create a great environment of us working together and I was leading a startup. And so I share this in the answer to your question of how open we should be at work. The reality is you already are sharing your emotions with others. And I know that, you know, I work with leaders, I, I have leadership programs I lead, I work with leaders and companies, and this question comes up all the time, Tammy. Well, I, it's scary. I don't, I don't think I can share with my team that I'm feeling uncertain or that I'm feeling down. You know, don't they just ex expect me, as you said, to just be confident? More and more, if you look at the research, 
the most successful leaders who are most trusted by their teams, whose teams are most effective, there are leaders who actually are open about their emotions. They give context to how they're feeling, and they also create a way for their teams to be open about their emotions. So I just want to say really one thing, and I have a practice in the book for how to actually talk about your emotional whiteboard. But I just want to say to everyone listening, being open about your emotions doesn't mean that you have to kind of, you know, open up your heart and constantly talk about how you're feeling. The question that I want you to ask is, what would be helpful for my team or this person that I'm talking to at work? What would be helpful for them to know about how I'm feeling for this to be the best interaction? And as an example of that, of something I frequently do with my colleague, who's my right hand, Debbie, if I haven't slept well or something is going on in my life, I'll shoot her a quick email. We live in two different cities and I'll just say, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm super cranky today because I, you know, stuff going on at home. I'm fine, but that's what's going on. I just want to let you know. And that way she doesn't have to spend energy trying to figure out why is Natalie being so weird today? And she can actually have an opportunity to say, oh, well, is there anything I can do to help? And so sharing your emotional whiteboard is not about telling all the things that are going on. It's just maybe one sentence that you can give context to other people. And again, for me, what helps is ask this question, what would be helpful for my team to know about how I'm feeling for this to be the best possible interaction? You know, it's helpful to have the example and to think about how to do it skillfully and that perhaps someone could say something like, I'm going to test this out on you. I'm going through a difficult time with my partner right now, and I don't really want to talk about the details, but I want to let you know that what I'm going through right now doesn't relate to our work environment. It's something happening within my marriage. I'm just bringing up some example or something that's, it's not true in my personal case, but I'm just like something like some That's a great example. Because like, I don't want to talk about it with the people I work with. It's none of their business, et cetera. But I do want to cue people in to what's happening for me. So there are ways to do it that protect. There are ways to do it, you know, and I want to, I just want to share because I, I, you know, I love practices and examples. I want to share another example, um, just not you, not me, a third party. Yeah. So um, this is an example. So uh, Carrie Palomera McGrath is one of the um, uh, physicians at Massachusetts, Gen- Massachusetts General Hospital, which is right outside of Boston, where I live. And Carrie is someone who's been leading their COVID team. And I say this like, this is a person with a very, very stressful leadership job. And she went through one of my leadership programs, learning how to share her emotional whiteboard. And she emailed me the other day, so I just want to share it. Um, I think this is in, in uh, I think we made, we put this into the book. Um, but her example was, she said, oh my God, I just want to tell you this was like a life changer. She said, her nanny was late that morning. So she had to take her daughter to her preschool. And so she was running late for her rounds with her residents. She said, and I was coming into the round. She said, the quote she used, I knew I was coming in hot. She said, I ran in and they're all kind of looking at me kind of scared because, you know, I'm, I'm coming in hot. They think it's something they did, she said. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to practice right now. And she said, she looked at them and she said, all right, you guys, I had a crazy morning. Everything went off the rails and I haven't had my coffee. So that's what's going on. It has nothing to do with you. And then she said, and what would really help me is if we could just pull together and have the best rounds. She said she's never had better rounds before, that she felt there was like a collective exhale. As soon as she said, it was one sentence, Tammy. She just said, I had a crazy morning. That's why I'm like this. 
she said everyone just exhaled and was able to focus their attention on having great rounds together. And I love sharing that example because I think few of us have jobs as stressful as a doctor on the front lines of COVID. And so if Carrie can practice it in the moment, I think we can all practice it too. And again, it's just what would be helpful for other people to know, to have a little bit of context for why I might, might be acting this way. It's one sentence from your emotional whiteboard. You don't have to share all the personal details. And um, I, I think it is one of the most powerful practices that I share. And it's been, uh, I was gonna say life-changing and I was like, is that grandiose? No, it's been life-changing in my work and life as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because in the work world now, one of the themes that I keep reading about is how many people are suffering from various levels of burnout. And you make this connection that when we're not emotionally honest with other people, I think you call it surface acting, mm. that when we're surface acting at work, it actually contributes Yes. To burnout. So can you explain that connection? How does surface acting contribute to burnout? Of course. So um, by the way, surface acting, this is an um, uh, existing psychological term, and it is something a lot of people suffer from, especially in um, what psychologists call kind of customer facing jobs. So customer service folks, doctors, nurses, teachers, people who have an expectation of serving others. They suffer a lot from surface acting, but we all do. Um, and the reason, and again, just as I shared before, I surface acted for most of my career, again, thinking I was doing the right thing. The reason it's one of the leading causes of burnout is it takes a tremendous amount of emotional labor to pretend to feel a certain way when you don't. It actually, if you think about your brain um, is, is going and thinking about one thing, and it's feeling, it's acknowledging like it's feeling a, an emotion of stress, but then you're asking it to put on facial features and to say words that are in dissonance with that. And that dissonance is very, very hard for the human brain. So surface acting takes a tremendous amount of energy. And that is one of the ways that it leads to burnout. The other reason that surface acting um, is one of the causes of burnout is Research shows that when we are surface acting, it actually prevents us from having productive, supportive relationships with others, as again, I experienced with my team, right? If I'm always pretending that everything is amazing, I'm kind of hard to relate to. People sense I'm not authentic, so they're not sharing their emotions with me. I feel more alone. And that lack of genuine connection that surface acting creates is also um, a leading cause of burnout because as human beings, one of our core requirements at work and outside of work is a sense of belonging, a sense that we belong. And having authentic connections with others reinforces that sense of belonging. So if we're surface acting, we're not creating those connections. We feel more and more alone. And that is another reason it leads to burnout. Now, a couple times, Natalie, you've referenced this like big burnout experience <laughs> that you had. And I'd like to understand a little bit more about that. And even, you know, I noticed the word burnout. It's one of those things we can all kind of relate to it. But mm. what actually is it? So I'd like to understand that. Yeah. So, you know, that could take us for <laughs> three hours of a podcast. We won't go there. You know, burnout is, um, it, it's, it, it's again, as you just said, we all know when we feel it, but it's actually difficult to define. There are some scientific definitions. So some characteristics of burnout that are widely accepted are 
a growing resentment towards your job, inability to complete basic things in your job, um, a disconnection between you and your job, um, not feeling like you have any energy to do your job. So those are just some common characteristics. But one of the things that is important for me to articulate and what I try to do in this book is I went through what I call an avalanche burnout. I actually stopped being able to function. And um, it was a very, very scary time. I stopped being able to function as a mom, as a leader, as an employee. And I had to put my life on hold to heal from it. But not you don't have to experience that. I think we can all relate to the idea of daily burnout, right? How many times have we gotten to the end of the day and you're just on empty? and you're so resentful of your work. It could be work you love, but you just can't take it anymore. You don't have any energy. And again, I, you know, through our at work program and my work with leaders, I hear this from people all the time. So daily burnout, I think is a reality for so many of us, especially now. Um, and I think that, again, this is why emotional awareness is such an important uh, part of awesome human qualities is what I talk about in the book. People often ask me like, Natalie, did you see warning signs before you burnt out? The truth is now I can look back, of course, including every single person in my life reaching out, asking me if they could help, which at the time I just dismissed as being really annoying because remember I was a lone warrior, superwoman, And why were people bothering to ask me if I was okay and if they could help? Now I can look at those morning signs, sleeping not enough, drinking too much, not eating, over identifying with my job. But at the time, as I was kind of descending further and further into the cycle of burnout, I didn't have the emotional awareness skills to pause and actually check in with myself and say, well, how am I feeling? That was never a question I ever asked myself, Tammy. And that's one of the practices that I offer in the book around emotional awareness is this daily check-in which seems so simple, but it wasn't for me. And it's not for many of us. Many of us live disconnected from our emotions, but it's one of the best investments that you can make into helping yourself not burn out is just checking in with yourself, just like you check in with people you love or your teammates and just saying, how am I feeling? Like, how is my emotional, mental, and physical energy? And that awareness becomes the beginning to your ability to shift. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say, and I want to check this out with you, Natalie, that the Awesome Human Project is in some ways sort of your response to the mm -hmm. burnout avalanche you went through and your gift to other people of, let me share with you what I learned so you don't have to go through the kind of avalanche burnout I did. Practice this and it won't happen. I don't think it could be put more succinctly or beautifully, Tammy. I really do mean that. I say this on stage a lot. I say on stage, I think I say this in the book that um, I want to teach you these skills and practices to, I use this expression, to catch you before you fall. Because I do believe that we don't have to burn out to be successful, to have positive impact. In fact, I always thought that was the choice that I had to make between my well-being or success and achievement. And I chose success and achievement, but actually I've come to see it completely interconnected. When you cultivate your emotional fitness, when you invest in a more supportive relationship with yourself, you actually have greater capacity for achievement, success, and positive impact. You can do it in a more sustainable way. Um, 
you can uh, be a light in the life of others versus as I used to be a pretty heavy cloud, even as I was achieving. So your articulation is right on. And, um, you know, I am lucky and incredibly, um, this is my life's purpose, the work I do, but I work with tens of thousands of people every year in companies and in leadership settings. And I teach them, I always share my experience and I tell them what you said. I said, these are the lessons I've learned and I've done a ton of research in psychology and neuroscience and behavioral science. I'm a total geek. Um, so it's all supported by research, but I do firmly believe that it is possible to do work we love, to have a positive impact in the world and not to do it as a way to burn ourselves out. And that's why I teach these skills. So you're absolutely right. It's not a book I could have written five years ago. Now, I want to make sure that we complete our list of these five awesome human qualities. Yes. You introduced, and you know, in, in the book, of course, you go into these five qualities in quite a lot of depth and offer practices and skills to cultivate these qualities. We're just touching on them here. But we briefly touched on the courage to talk back to your brain, emotional openness, and becoming aware of your emotional whiteboard. You talked about how awesome humans are leaders. And I did want to ask you one more question about that before we move yeah. on, which is, I think a lot of people are like, oh, come on. I don't want to be a leader. Everybody wants to be a leader. It's like an ego thing. I'm a leader. That means I have followers. Like, can't I just be an awesome human without being a leader? Well, it's a great, it's a great point, but there it comes. Um, and I think I mentioned it briefly. Uh, a definition of what a leader is. A leader is not about how many people you manage or how many followers you have. It actually has nothing to do with that or what your title is or where you are in the org chart of your company or the world. None of that makes you a leader. You are a leader if you positively impact other people's capacity to thrive. And I have yet, Tammy, to meet a person, and again, I'm lucky to meet tens of thousands of people who will tell me, you know what? I do not want to have a positive impact on other people. You can be a leader in your family. You can be a leader uh, in, a, in a team, on a soccer team, in your reading a book club, in your church. You don't have to be a leader just in your job. As a mom, I want to positively impact my daughter's capacity to thrive. That makes me a leader. And so I think that the question you're asking is asking us to redefine what leadership is. And one of my hopes is that I'm doing that in the book to recognize we're all leaders if we care about having a positive impact on other people. And again, to do that, we have to practice these things first to have a positive impact on ourselves. Okay, you convinced me. What are the <laughs> other two awesome human qualities? So the fourth one is self-compassion, which uh, again, if you asked me five years ago, would not I would not think that would be on the list. But self-compassion, um, as I define it, self-compassion is uh, treating yourself uh, the way that you would a friend with the intention to reduce struggle and suffering and uh, self-compassion and part of it is self-acceptance um, are two concepts, Tammy, just to be honest with you, that took me the longest to even comprehend. I used mm. to think of self-compassion as like, oh yeah, I'm amazing as I am. Okay. Everything is amazing about me and I never have to improve and kind of letting myself off the hook. I used to hate that idea because I misunderstood it. And again, I thought that if I, let's say I make a mistake or I'm not living up to my expectations, that if I just harshly pummel myself with criticism, 
that is how I'm going to get better. Well, again, it took my burnout for me to shift my perspective around that, that, you know, by the way, I just want to say this, there are zero studies, not one, not two, zero that show that harsh self-criticism helps us improve. It doesn't. It reduces motivation. It actually reduces our ability to make progress. But there's tons of studies that show that when we fail at something or realize we're not living up to our expectations, when we treat ourselves as we would a friend, again, we acknowledge, here's a way I want to improve or here's how I screwed up. But then we treat ourselves in a way that reduces our suffering. We have more energy, more of our intellectual and emotional capacity to actually do the work to improve. And so self-compassion and self-acceptance, um, self-compassion is a, a really essential quality of awesome humans. And the final is a commitment to practicing emotional fitness skills. And I talk about the five emotional fitness skills and give you a challenge in the book of how to practice each one of acceptance, gratitude, self-care, intentional kindness, and the bigger why. But awesome humans have a daily ongoing commitment to practicing these skills. Just like when we began um, this interview, you talked about physical fitness, right? If you want to be physically fit, you eat healthier, you get some movement in your day, and what, you do it regularly. Awesome humans are committed to regularly practicing their emotional fitness skills so they create this more supportive relationship with themselves and so they struggle less when things are challenging. Now, you say emotional fitness is like broccoli. Mm. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Yeah, it's a, again, if you're listening and you hate broccoli, just think of another vegetable, please. So, you know, it's it, often when I talk, I, you know, I say to people, you know, emotional fitness and people are nodding. They're like, yeah, I know these are good skills. I mentioned gratitude and acceptance. It's kind of like broccoli. So we all know broccoli is good for us, right? It has a lot of vitamins and nutrients. But just knowing that broccoli is good for you does not do you any good. You actually have to eat the broccoli to get the benefits, right? I have broccoli in my fridge, but unless I eat it, I don't get the benefits. The same with emotional fitness skills. Just knowing or reading research that, yeah, I know gratitude's good. I should do more self-care. I should be more kind. Just knowing those things is not doesn't give you the benefit. We actually have to practice. And I say this in my talks and I say this in my book. If you're getting sick of me saying the word practice, I'm doing something right. All right. Now, I want to uh, ask you a challenging question here, which is, I can imagine someone listening who says, okay, I'm going to become aware of struggle and not necessarily say, I have to struggle to make changes happen in the world. I don't need to do it through struggle. But yet I look around me and I see the crises that we face as a collective, mm. the ecological crisis, climate change. And when it comes to challenges like the challenges of social justice, I need to struggle to make change in the world. I don't mm. want to just be some like personal, happy camper, comfortable with my emotions. You know, I'm part of the struggle to change the world. What, what would you say? Well, and I, what I would say to that is uh, we're mixing our terms a little. So let's get our terms right because there's actually no disagreement. So, you know, it reminds me, brings to mind, I once went several years ago to um, a meditation seminar and I can't remember who the teacher was, but he said, okay, raise your hand if you want to make more money. 
you know, some people raise their hand. Raise your hand if you want to cure cancer. You know, some people raise their hand. Raise your hand if you want to eliminate climate change. You know, raise their hands. He said, fantastic. I don't care why you meditate, but if you want to solve those problems, you need to meditate. And his point was, who is it in the world that solves problems? Is it people who are constantly frantic, who don't, can't figure out how to think clearly, who are constantly at loss for kind of clarity and direction? He said, no. People who solve problems, they're able to think clearly, and that's what med meditation helps you do. They're able to understand other people. That's what meditation helps you do. And so that really stayed with me. And that's at the core of what I'm saying. The, the reason that I am encouraging as passionately as I can, the reason I do this work for people to practice these skills to struggle less internally is when you struggle less internally, you actually have more capacity. I mean, intellectual capacity, decision-making capacity, communication capacity, problem-solving capacity to solve all these problems that you're talking about, Tammy. And in that way, I'll go even further and say that that practicing these emotional fitness skills is not just not a luxury or something that you do to be a happy camper because that's not the goal. It is your responsibility to our community and our world because the only way that you are going to help solve these very real crises and problems is if you bring your full emotional, mental, intellectual decision-making capacity to them. And the only way you can do that is if you don't waste that energy on internal struggle. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that in the Awesome Human Project, you have a five-week emotional fitness challenge. Mm -hmm. And we won't have time to go into it, but each week we take on a different set of practices. And I'm going to go into week three for a moment because I found this interesting where the focus is treating ourselves with self-care. Mm. And I, I bring that up because you have a great definition of self-care that I really appreciated because I think sometimes people think self-care is this or that, it's indulgent or it's being like products are being sold to me so mm -hmm. that I scrub my skin or something, mm -hmm. Not which is good. I mean, I probably should buy some products and scrub my skin uh, a little bit more, but I just take you know, borrow the ones that are in the shower from my <laughs> wife. But anyway, uh, so tell us about self-care, your definition, and why you think this is an important skill for awesome humans. I love that I get to talk about this, Tammy, because uh, I think there are so many misconceptions about self-care, including the ones I had of it being luxurious, self-indulgent, or something that, as you said, you need to spend money to have it. None of that is true. The way that I define self-care is a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. And here's very tactically what I mean. Um, take example of a car, right? A car needs fuel to do its job of being a car, whether it's a gas car or an electric car. When the car runs out of gas or electricity, it cannot do its job of being a car. It doesn't matter how hard it pushes itself, how many motivating talks it gives itself, it just can't. Your energy is your fuel. So if you want to be uh, a great parent, a great friend, a colleague, if you want to work on your craft or do things that are meaningful to you, you have to have energy. And energy is not just physical. About two-thirds of the things we do throughout the day require emotional energy, right? And so you cannot do your job of being a human 
without energy. And I hope, and I, you know, teach a lot of workshops on this, that just in that redefinition of self-care, we can then shift through and break through the guilt that many of us feel, right? I, I used to feel this all the time. I cannot tell you how many people tell me, you know, I'd love to do something to fuel my energy, but I feel so guilty. My brain keeps telling me, you know, other people need you. Well, I want you to ask yourself, what is it that other people need? Do they need you snapping at them? Do they need your heaviness? Do they need your inability to be patient or focus on them? That's what I bring to people when I don't practice self-care. I think we can all say that when we say other people need me, they need you at your fullest. They need you present and patient and attentive. And the only way to do that is if you have the emotional, physical, and mental energy to do it. And so um, I cannot tell you, Tammy, how many, and this, you know, everyone grows my heart, but how many breakthroughs I've heard from, from busy executives to, you know, stay-at-home moms who've told me that once they started to redefine self-care that way, it gave them the access, the opportunity to practice more of it. And the differences they began to see, not in just how they felt, but in the impact they had on others. And so I love that we get to talk about it. I wish I could shout it from the rooftops in every media outlet, because again, if you read, I, it's exactly what you said, we kind of self-care has become cheapened or luxuriated actually to a place of like, no, you need these seven products and you need to take two weeks off and you, know, you need to have this experience. The most powerful self-care is the way we practice it every day. So. Every day, one of the practices I give is, can you ask yourself, I talk about a 15-minute fuel up. For 15 minutes a day, what can you do to fuel your energy? And there's a lot of research that shows that that has a huge impact on your well-being as well as on your ability to be at your best and whatever is meaningful to you. Yeah, it's interesting just using that metaphor of being a vehicle. And, you mm -hmm. know, I, I'm at the refueling station, friends. Where exactly. If I use that language, I think everyone around me would be like, please refuel yourself. Excellent. It's been amazing to see, you know, I teach this practice um, of the daily fuel up to companies, to executives, to teams, and there are whole teams that practice it together. So what they do is they end their team meeting 15 minutes early every week, and then 15 minutes that's left is everyone's fuel up time. And I've heard from so many people who said, I never used to even use that word at work, self-care. It just kind of didn't fit. But we're all talking about like, did you fuel up today? What did you do for your fuel up today? Oh, you took a walk. I'm going to do that for my fuel up. So I think a lot of what, I, what I've tried to do, and again, I only share what I've done for myself and with others, is words matter and language matters. And if we define self-care the right way, it actually gives us access to practice it more. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the last point I want to bring up, Natalie, is in the fifth week of your five-week emotional fitness challenge, you help people connect to their mm -hmm. bigger why. Uh, how is that part of emotional fitness? And will you share with us your bigger why? So it is really difficult. I was going to say impossible, between difficult and impossible, to be an awesome human and to have well-being and to feel like you're living fully if you don't feel like your life has a purpose. And one of the big kind of 
shifts in my mind that I articulate in the book around purpose is I think often we think of sense of meaning or purpose as something that's out there and we have to go find it, right? You know, The Alchemist is an amazing book that many of us have read where the young boys goes on a pilgrimage to to find a sense of purpose. And I want to invite everyone listening and reading the book to reconsider that your sense of purpose is not somewhere out there, but it's actually in your life as it is right now. And the practice is to connect with it. And the way that we do that is by connecting things that we are doing, the projects at work, the stuff we're working on at home, to how does it help other people? How does it contribute to something other, bigger than you? That is where most of us find meaning. And um, you asked me what my sense of purpose is and what my bigger why is. And my bigger why is to help as many people as possible learn these science-backed skills so they can struggle less even when life is challenging. And um, it's very personal for me because... You know, we started by talking about my coming here as a refugee from a tradition where struggle was actually something that was venerated and worshipped. Like, if you were struggling, you were doing something right. So it's a very personal sense of purpose for me because I feel that um, I've, I've gone through a lot to kind of transcend the where I come from and to bring the best of what I've learned to help others struggle less. Um, and... I have a an incredibly optimistic view. I'm not an optimist by nature. I'm not sure there are many Russian Jewish optimists in the world. I'm not an optimist <laughs> by nature, but I have a very optimistic, um, I guess, view of us all having this capacity to learn these skills, to struggle less, and then to bring our unique abilities to solve all the problems, to help each other, to create a world um, that we're excited for ourselves and our kids to live in. And I, I, you know, I'm an, I'm, I'm a human. So there are days when I wake up and there's a pile of work and I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want to do this. And that's actually something I say in the book. That's important to say, just because you find your work meaningful doesn't mean you're always excited about it. And doesn't mean there are days when you're not sick of it. That just makes you human. Um, but most of the time I feel I pinch myself, Tammy, that I get to wake up every day and do whatever I can to serve what feels like after 46 years is the clearest and most honest sense of purpose and bigger why that I have. I've been talking with awesome human Natalie Kogan. She's the author of the new book, The Awesome Human Project, Break Free from Daily Burnout, Struggle Less, and Thrive More in Work and Life. The book is filled with very practical suggestions you can start working on immediately to develop more emotional fitness in your life. Natalie, great to talk to you and thanks for being such an awesome human and inspiring other humans to be awesome humans. Thank Thank you, you. Tammy. Thank you. Your, Your thoughtful questions helped me be at my best. I'm so grateful for that. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at resources.soundstrue.com backslash podcast. That's resources.soundstrue.com slash podcast. If you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. 
I absolutely love getting your feedback and being connected. Sounds true. Waking up the world.